，鬼岛之音 ，Ghost Island Media。I had the opportunity to meet someone really cool. In the past, he worked with Ban Ki Moon, you know, the UN Ban Ki Moon, and his name is Professor Naki, but that's not actually his real name. My name is Neboša Nakičenović, which not everybody can pronounce, so everybody calls me Naki. Hi, I'm Nature Nate, and this is Waste Not Why Not, a podcast on how not to save the environment. I'm an environmental researcher based in Taiwan, working on energy, ocean, and waste issues. I'll admit that I hadn't heard of Professor Naki before this show, but after I listened to him speak in Taipei, I wish I had heard of him earlier on. I was born in former Yugoslavia, and I've been working for the last 50 years on what I consider to be very exciting and interesting problems facing the humanity, in particular starting with energy,、uh, moving to transport issues, economic development, environment, climate change, and now sustainable development. Fifty years! Wow, I'm not even thirty, and I'm exhausted. As a child, Professor Naki wanted to study theoretical physics, but he changed his mind. When he got to university, he became an economist instead. The PhD in physics couldn't find a job all that easy in those days, and I thought to myself, I actually have to study something that also has can provide interesting work even in the days of crisis. It is out of the crisis of our systems that new emerges. Crisis. We'll come back to that. Anyway, this aspiring physicist turned economist started working on environmental and economic problems together. Thereafter, I started working in an interdisciplinary area, and you know, if you have a wide scientific community and community of experts in a study、uh, that bring different perspectives in seeing the problems or seeing the solutions to the problems, that's a great learning experience. So I do that quite a lot, but I'm also interested in analogies from history for the future. The Sustainable Development Goals came out of the Millennium Development Goals, which are used for funding and international aid agencies to align their projects. They're extremely important for large-scale institutional funding because if you don't have these kinds of agreements, you could have the UN trying to solve fishing in one particular way, and then you could have the World Bank or USAID or a German aid institute trying to all approach it from different directions. So this was an attempt by the UN to try and get everyone on the same page. To solve problems together, there are 17 different sustainable development goals, ranging from educating young women to having clean water to having electric vehicles to having carbon-free power to eliminating overseas and illegal fishing, and just basically trying to fix the world in a holistic and sustainable way. And the majority of them have a deadline by 2030, so that means we have to accomplish them. Professor Naki is unique in that he is saying we need radical change to accomplish our sustainable development goals, and that technology can be additive. He's talking about these sort of roughly fifty-year blocks of 
technological leaps. There is a 100%, 1000% difference between the time before we had steam engines and the time afterwards. The thing that caught my attention and made me realize that he was different was that this guy was talking about cyborgs, this guy was talking about cell phones. Uh, what's radical is something fundamentally new. It's not an improvement of the old. Uh, but then what do you characterize as radical is in the eye of the beholder. So I could say electric cars are radical because, you know, they're not an improvement of internal combustion propulsion. Others might say that's more incremental because you still have the cars and you don't have a completely different mode of transport. But with all of that caveats, I think there are things that are not a result of accumulated small improvements, but are something fundamentally new. You know, maybe in the energy area, uh, you know, let's say fusion would be really new if we can do it. <laughs> we don't know whether we can do it. But this kind of great innovations that can change the world are radical. This kind of non-linear technology growth is something that he thinks can be channeled and used for sustainable development, which is very different from things that you hear from technologists who don't really acknowledge sustainable development and very different from sustainable development policy workers who don't really acknowledge technology, even though it changes their whole way of working. 50 years ago from now, we didn't have digital technology. And then 50 years before that, we didn't have electricity or industrialized technology, which is to say like 100 years ago. So he's trying to say that every 50 years, there's like a large scale technological chain. Let's jump to 2050 and just pretend we're in a time machine. Your, your team back in 2019 recently published a report imagining the world in 2050 and what we would need to do to achieve the sustainable development goals. You know, most people, including me, have a hard time imagining what next week will be like. And this report tries to imagine the future. We are taking the political goal as given and we are trying to provide science for it, to understand how to get there. So it's not about predicting the future. It's about what do we need to do to reach a particular desirable future. He's really optimistic about the use of technology, but he also knows that we can't pin all of our hopes onto it. When the steam engines emerged and the railways were developed and the coal provided the energy, and then the textiles came. That was a very powerful development paradigm for the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Now, digital technologies might offer the same potential, but also the same dangers. You know, we have forgotten that locomotives would explode and kill many people. You know, they would ignite, especially in U.S., ignite whole forests on fire. Uh, so there were also bad environmental impacts. So my, my point is that technologies are neutral. It depends on us as humanity what we do with them. They're both a solution and a problem. There are 17 sustainable development goals, and each of those 17 have multiple targets within them. There are actually 169 targets in total. 2030 isn't that far away. It's only 10 years. How are we going to get all this stuff done? It will not be done by incremental change. And I'm afraid that many people, when they look at the challenge of SDGs, think it can be done incrementally. You know, small improvements here and there. That addresses your question. So together, they're all exceedingly ambitious and require fundamental transformational change. You know, there will be some that would be easier to achieve. But I think we have to be careful not to look at any in isolation and say just because it's easier to achieve, we should do this first. And we need to look at them holistically. Do you want to stop climate change? Do you want to brainwash people and teach them the right way to solve problems? I have an app for that. It's called Patreon. 
and I'm on that app. And I know it seems sketchy to go on, log on, give someone your credit card information, but you do it all the time with Facebook. So why not go over to Patreon, sign up, and then go over to Waste Not Why Not on Patreon and agree to give us some money every month. That money is not just used for beer and coffee. It actually helps us make the show itself. And you get bonus content. You get hot takes. And you get to join a secret Facebook group I'm in. And it's pretty fun. And you should go to Patreon and sign up. It's not weird. It's totally legit. Other people do it too. And uh, sign up. Give me money. The world, as in the world of scientists, has known that climate change was a thing for a very long time. Almost 100 years, honestly. People knew about something kind of like climate change. But there was not a cohort of scientists or a community of scientists talking and researching climate change and setting a baseline of knowledge. That changed when the UN created the IPCC and also the UNFCC, which were bodies that were in charge of creating reports and sort of setting the baseline for information on climate change. And This might not seem useful to you if you're from a country that has a lot of research institutions, but the world is composed of nearly 200 countries, and not all of them have the resources and research necessary to help them predict climate models. And these countries are also the same countries that are going to be the most impacted by climate change. That's why we need a UN body related to climate change is so we can share research from multiple countries and so also we can then share that research with other countries and governments and set a global baseline. Carbon is fundamentally a global problem, so therefore we need a global consensus on how to solve it. If every country does not agree on how to solve climate change, then there's no way that we're going to actually do it. And I've been involved in the IPCC from the beginning, so I've seen the evolution. And I think it's an exceedingly unique organization. It is unique in the sense that you have a scientific community, broad you know, from people working on climate to people working on economics and technology, um, producing the reports that have to be approved by the government. That's very unique. So that means it has to be science-based, but the government still have something to say. Otherwise, the report will not be approved. So it's an interesting interaction between the policy and the science, and I think very unique. And without IPCC, we would have made, in my view, very little progress in understanding, having collective understanding of climate change and what needs to be done. The IPCC and the UNFCC and all these other CCs are the research bodies, but there's also a negotiation element that needs to go on with climate change because that doesn't really matter if we understand the impacts and we understand how we're causing climate change. We also have to come to an agreement on how to stop it. Every year, the UNFCC organizes the Conference of Parties, which is not as fun as it sounds, and is instead where every country gets together and negotiates on how to reduce their carbon impacts. The most important Conference of Parties, COP, in recent years was the 21st. It was the first year where countries agreed to set their own targets to reduce carbon emissions to be in line with keeping global temperatures below 2.5 degrees. To phrase that another way, countries agreed to lower their carbon emissions to prevent catastrophic global warming from occurring. A 2.5 degree average increase in temperature is going to have radical changes on many different types of ecosystems. If average warming increases by 1.5 degrees Celsius, we will lose coral, which is what we're on track to do. 
If it goes up to 2.5 degrees, we will face catastrophic warming, droughts, storms, wildfires. There will be epic levels of habitat loss and disruption to animal migration. How do you manage cultural collaboration? You're working with many different countries, and there's going to be a lot of different working cultures. Is that easy to manage, hard? How do you find that experience? Well, first in the scientific area, that I can speak with a little bit more knowledge and the, the political negotiation process. In the scientific area, there are bigger barriers between the disciplines than between the cultures Let's say an American mathematician might have difficulties communicating with an American psychologist or, you know, sociologist. Let's let's put it that way. Uh, but I would say, you know, Taiwanese mathematician, Russian mathematician, or American mathematician would have a very common language. There would be no cultural barrier. But even in social scientists, it is that way. So science is somewhere is universal. So this, I think, that the cultural biases play a much less significant controlling culture. Um, in the negotiations, my limited experience, if I look at the conferences of the parties, is the negotiation negotiators are experts, and they have experts behind them. And so I would say their differences are more political and strategic than cultural, if I may put it that way. But this is my intuitive feeling. So I, I would argue that negotiators are, you know, exceedingly well-informed, and uh, if there are big differences, which one observes, many of them are part of the strategy of negotiations. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I, in that area, I wouldn't place the cultural differences that big, but they're important for other areas of human activity. That's clear. Different cultures have a different way of coming to consensus and decisions about their common future. So fortunately, two physicists can get along no matter what country. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so I think our challenge, at least in science, but science also works ever more with stakeholders from different strata of the society and interest groups, our challenge there is to actually find a common language, despite all of the barriers, disciplinary barriers, cultural barriers. There are many, many. And so that's, that's another challenge that we have. There is no planet B, <laughs> so we do have to work together on one planet that we are on the way of threatening. We're talking about a lot of these like big macro issues, but I guess in your view, are we doing enough? Are we doing enough? How are Homo sapiens doing to meet our sustainable development goals? The cradle of humanity we developed during the so-called Holocene, that is the last 10,000 years. Uh, that was a very unique period in the human, in the planet's history, that the climate has been not all that variable. I think that explains why we have developed agriculture in the Neolithic Revolution, early civilizations. During the last 200 years of industrial revolution, our activities have become so strong, climate being a good example, that one species is influencing the whole planet. And so the big question is, how dangerous is that for the existence of our species on this planet, that we are moving out of the area where we have actually developed into an unknown territory. We need to increase the awareness that we are in a relatively precarious situation because the pressure on the planet is increasing and, uh, you know, technology and institutional change are the only ways to do it. We all have to do it. Thanks for listening to Waste Not, Why Not? 
Next week, we're going to talk more about COP and why they had a problem with a 22-year-old student activist from Taiwan. This has been the waste... This is not... This will be really tough today, Austin. This has been the Waste Not Why Not podcast. We recorded it at MyCoin, a Bitcoin exchange in Taipei, Taiwan. It's actually much easier to talk that way. Thanks to the Taiwan Risk Society and Policy Research Center, this has been a Ghost Island Media production. We're based at MyCoin, a Bitcoin exchange in Taipei, Taiwan. Do you have a question for us? Email your voice recording at ask at wastenotwhynot.com. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever, and give us a good rating. Support us on Patreon. We are Waste Not Why Not on Patreon and Facebook, and Waste Not Pod on Twitter. I'm your host, Nature Nate. This episode was produced and edited by Emily Y. Wu and Allison Cham. Emily Y. Wu is our executive producer, brand designed by Thomas Lee. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.